silent reverence. It could be called dancing, but it could also be through music, which is not worship. Dr. John MacArthur drawing a fine line. Worship is us ascribing to God who he is, thanking him for what he has done. Music is not worship. Music is the device. It is the carrier of our worship, but it by itself is not worship. Misconception number two. And misconception is that music motivates worship. Music induces worship. That's not true either. That is not true. It gives expression to love. It gives expression to adoration. But the motivation for that has to come from somewhere else, not from music. Music enhances and enriches. But the motive for all of our songs is not a sound, it's a truth. That is where our worship should come from. Knowledge, that causes us to desire to sing. It is truth that motivates worship. It is not music that induces worship. Permit me to do my impression of a secular concert. You've seen them before. The music is thumping and bumping. The whole place, like this. And now my impression of a Christian concert. And you go, wait a second, it's the exact same, exact same thing. And I say, well, my cats are working. Exactly. You see, when the secular music gets people amped up, they desire to look like they're worshiping, but they're not. And the same thing is true for Christian music. It can get people amped up. It can get them jumping and dancing. But that is not worship in and of itself. Worship is not merely jumping. Jumping could be an expression of our worship, but our worship is our heart expressing itself to God, and worship is merely the vehicle, but it is not the thing that causes us to worship. Truth, and only truth, can do that. Thoughts? He's funny. He's funny. <laughs> yeah, he is a little funny. Other thoughts besides that? <laughs> kind of where we're going. Like, yeah. Ouch, thanks, Johnny. <laughs> yeah. You know, but then it's like, I, I can see the point. Yeah. yeah. We're going to unpack this today in that. Um, especially here's where we're going to start. It's this idea that uh, we have, in many ways, uh, narrowed down this thought process of what is worship to music only, especially music. Um, it's one of the reasons why uh, the team that gets up and sings for us, we don't really call them the worship team. As is common in most churches, that's what they would be called. They're the music team. But they're not the worship team. Because that's not the only means by which we worship on a Sunday. And there's this 
understanding, unfortunately, in our culture that that to worship is to sing. That's the worship portion of the service. And then we move on to the preaching, and then we move on to the giving, and then we move on to these other items. But the worship um, of God is the music. And that's a, that's a cheapening. That's a narrowing of what worship is down to the point where we're missing out on so much in our understanding and our expression to God when we put it only in the bucket of singing, right? So we're going to spend a little bit of time there, but as we, as we start with a little bit of this concept of music, we'll play with this just for a bit. Um, if you think about many, many churches, when we are talking about the portion of our corporate worship that is singing, that can be a part of our worship, there's all sorts of skirmishes over this. Um, there's all sorts of strong, strong opinions on it. Um, the volume. Oh, boy, I used to be a sound guy. And I will tell you that there's nothing worse. Well, there are other things that are worse. But there are, it's on the list of one of the hardest jobs in a church because nobody is ever happy with you when you're the sound guy. It's too loud. It's too quiet. It's too muffled. It's too bassy. It's too tinny. You can't hear the instruments. Your favorite instrument, that is. Um, like it's a it's a challenging thing. So volume, instrumentation. There's been skirmishes over that. Should we have drums? Should we not have drums? Electric guitar, acoustic, um, no instruments at all. Um, can there be a cajon up there? Can we have a jambe up there? Is that okay? Or is that too drumish? 290s rock for us. Are we okay? Like we have all of these different. How about style? Um, I was meeting with a good friend of mine this week who was mentioning uh, one of his one of his dreads currently is that their music team leader is constantly playing 90s Christian worship music and you just can't just can't handle it because it's just so old school, right? Style, frequency, it divides churches. It sends people from church to church looking for their preferred style of music. So all of these worship wars, um, the focus is almost exclusively on music and especially the style of music when we're talking about the portion of our worship that's divided into singing almost always comes down to style not not always but in a good in a good sense do you see any dangers in investing so much in a specific style of music to use in a church same one What else would you add to that? No, I think it's also in the way that it's presented. Hmm. Because there can be underlying things that... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mean like 
light and dry eyes. Yes. <laughs> dry eyes. Smoke machine. Yeah. Do you have a preferred style? Yes. Do you think everyone in the room probably has a preferred style of music? And probably a preferred style that you like to hear on Sunday mornings. And there's a potential danger for us when we take our preferred style and we elevate it to the position of believing that that is the best style. And anything below that style is subpar. And then we ascribe to it as not worshiping well. Like that's the standard by which we evaluate the music and determine whether or not it was good or not. Or if we're really honest, sometimes, um, I haven't heard this statement here that much, but it, it was it's common in a lot of churches for us to maybe walk away from the music portion of it and go, you know, I just, just wasn't feeling it this morning. Just, I don't know, that music just didn't seem, hmm, hmm. And it really, if you parse that out, it's, it didn't touch your style of music is usually what that, that comes down to. And we need to ask ourselves, is that the standard by which we determine for music and other elements of what is worship? Does it come down to our preferred style that we then judge whether or not it was worshipful? What is the basis to have sound doctrine when it comes to worship? Is it our preferential style? Or is there some other standard by which we then determine that was an act of worship? So that's what we're going to be getting into. Um, last little note here on on the music portion of it, because <clears throat> again, that's not music is not worship, right? So we're going to be we're going to be parsing that out. But last little note on music. Um, we might be surprised to find to learn that the Bible tells us very very little about the style of music churches should sing. Very very little. On one hand, the New Testament does provide for a pattern of what kinds of activities church should do in their corporate gatherings, namely singing, praying, reading scripture, preaching, celebrating baptism, the Lord's Supper. But on the other hand, it says little about the matters of style. In fact, as Christians, scripture tells us far more about why to worship God than about how to worship God. Simply put, Scripture tells us that we are to worship God because of who He is and what He has done. In other words, worship is filled by sound doctrine. So that's our main point for today. Sound doctrine fuels our worship of God because true worship is praising God for who He is and what He has done. Worship has this ambiguous definition to it in most of our daily lives like worship god and if i sat down five or ten people and said what does it mean to worship god what does that mean and practically how do you do that um i i wonder how clear of an answer i would i would get on that um or would it be uh we've we've heard the word we were ashamed that maybe at this point we weren't able to define it. So we all kind of play along and act like we know what everybody's talking about when they're like, we ought to worship God. And you're like, oh, yeah, so same. Got it. Um, do you have a mechanism in place to know when you are worshiping God 
and when you are not? Are you able to identify what worship is? Or is it, have we allowed ourselves to buy into the culture of both the world and the church of this mystical feeling of that felt like worship that didn't feel like worship? Um, rather than, do we know what it is? And do we know when we're participating in it? Because what, what amongst the list of things that we could be doing in this world would be more important for us to understand what it means to actually worship? If God is who he says that he is, then our acts of worship are right and ought to be done. Make sense? Anybody need a hug yet? I'm not going to give it to you, but <laughs> just put it out there just in case. All right, so that's our main idea. Sound doctrine fuels our worship of God because true worship is praising God for who he is and what he has done. Our main text for this morning is going to be Psalm 96. So let's go there. We're going to read the entire, the entire chapter, all 13 verses. Anybody want to tackle that for us? What kind of Bible do you got? What? There we go. Psalm 96. 97 is good as well, though. Uh, but let's do 96. Somebody read that for us. Thank you. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens... Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Amen. Amen. We have... So much in this psalm to point us in a direction of, of how to worship, of what worship is, and a 13 verses of beautiful application that we can look at. Um, when you're looking in verse 1 and the first half of verse 2, what does the psalmist command his hearers to do. And? Bless his 
Yep. That is, he commands us to sing praises to God, to worship him in song. That is a... Um, a nicely ignored command that we are given within Scripture. It's not supposed to be optional. It's not supposed to be if we feel like it. It's not supposed to be if we're feeling it this morning um, or any morning. Really, it is if God is, again, who he says that he is and he is, then the right, proper thing to do is to, in this instance, sing. So, when we go into the service this morning, we have one opportunity to do some of that singing. Um, evaluate for yourself. How often are you singing versus how often are you standing? And this is not about a, um, a checkbox that I'm looking to tick off to say, you better sing every single time or you're a heathen. Like that's not where I'm going. There are times in which it might be radically appropriate for you to stop singing in the midst of our singing. But as a general rule, as a general rule, do you find yourself singing or passively listening? And if anything creeps into your mind about, well, I'm not a singer, right? I don't sing well. My voice is off. We know. But anyways, um, notice that that's nowhere found anywhere in Scripture about unless you sound good, you better sing. Right? It is sing. Sing. What does the psalmist command his hearers to do in verses second half of two and into three? Yep. And keep going. What else? Yep. And? Anything else? Yeah. So the psalmist here, as a part of worship, commands his hearers to tell of God's salvation. So think about this just for a minute. Let's, let's take this a piece at a time. As I declare the gospel of what God has done on my behalf for me, for his glory and for my good, as I declare that to whatever audience is in front of me, that is an act of worship. Because worship is understanding rightly who God is, proclaiming and expressing that through action and voice. So therefore, as I tell you of God's marvelous grace to me, that is an act of worship. Let's keep going. Uh, still in these verses, declaring his glory among the nations. So, evangelizing, witnessing, telling those who are lost, of God's glorious gospel, see a recurring theme here, is also an act of worship, proclaiming and telling of who God is and what he has done 
is an act of worship, whether that is done through song or through word. It's worship. There's, there's a couple activities we've already got then in the bank. Uh, he commands us to tell those outside of the people of God about who God is and what he's done. Again, an act of, of worship. Uh, in several places, uh, the author gives reasons why people should worship God and declare his greatness to others. Um, let's, let's look at some of these. Uh, and I'm going to give you a little hint for us to be able to identify some of these. In order to figure out why we should praise God, I want you to look for the word for, F-O-R. And this is going to indicate what the author intended for the reasons why we should worship. So tell me what you find. We should praise God because... He is great. Because he's to be feared above all gods. Because he, yep, he made the heavens and made the earth. Keep going. Keep looking for stuff. Right. This seems like a maybe an easy thing, but when we bring it down to its nuts and its bolts, it's really important for us to understand not only are we to worship, but why are we to worship? And this section is pulling out for us just a few. Think about it. We've looked we're looking at one chapter in the entire Bible. And we have, in this one chapter, out of the entire Bible, reasons for why we should worship. Because he is above every other so-called God. We should praise God because he's unlike the worthless idols that, that people have. Because he's the one who created the heaven and the earth. We should worship him because... He is a righteous judge of all, and because he's coming to establish his kingdom forever. Wow. Wow. We, we should not run out of reasons to worship. There should be, on just about every page of Scripture, something that could fuel our worship. And again, our worship would be defined as knowing the truth of who God is and what he has done 
and expressing that through word and deed to his glory and for the good of and for our good ultimately but for his glory we should not have a lack of things to worship so there's a saying that I've adopted over the years I don't know who said it but it was really good on Sundays you shouldn't come to worship you should bring your worship with you because it's something that you are not just participating in and receiving rather worship is something that you're giving and why that is significant for one narrow application point would be that gets us away from consumerism when we're looking at what the Sunday morning experience ought to be about. If we show up expecting that our felt needs ought to be met here, that we ought to show up and I better get something out of this, and the, reason, the way I get something out of this is through the atmosphere, the decorations, the way it feels, the lighting, the music style, how eloquent the preacher was. Were there any tears as people moved into baptism? Like, what did I feel during the Lord's Supper? Like, that's how we would measure how was Sunday, is by what we received rather than what we gave. And what that does for us is it frees us within the confines of Orthodox Christianity, of course, but it frees us to not be concerned or consumed with the style of music. As long as the style of music is accompanied with words that are biblically rich and true and ascribe the reality of who God is and what he has done, then there's some freedom with the style. And as long as the preacher is accurately handling the Word of God and delivering to us God's truth so that we can live in light of that in application, it frees us from going, man, he's just not, he just doesn't, you know, he doesn't tell as many jokes as I would like. Or he's just not, he's just not as, he just doesn't, you know, there's certain guys that when they speak, man, he just can't. Listen, I'm going to tell you something that may just rub you completely the wrong way depending on whose camp in this world you're in. John MacArthur is a boring speaker. He is boring. He, if we were just to evaluate him based on how he speaks, and I'm just doing an evaluation. I used to do this for decades at Wells Fargo, just evaluating people in the classroom and how they deliver. He's not a good speaker. He's boring. He's monotone. It's not all that thrilling. It doesn't capture me. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What should be gripping us, what should be capturing us, is what he's saying about who God is. It should be God who's capturing us, and he should be trying to get out of the way so that we can see that. Right? So this frees us in, in many ways that we ought to be thinking about, and back to our text, we have so much, so much 
to be able to then bring our worship on a Sunday morning. We shouldn't be at home throughout the week really thinking hard about this. what bless you. What is it that God has done so that I can worship him? Shouldn't be hard to find. Yet, how often do you worship? Bless you. You only get two of those in a classroom, just so you know. The third one and you're out. Like, if you were to evaluate your own life and the amount of times that you find yourself worshiping, how often is that? Yeah. So, more often than not, when I'm reading the Bible and studying it, it's even hard to pray afterwards. Mm. And the reason I say that is because I'm overwhelmed. Mm. But not, I mean, not in a bad way. Yeah. It's just, I have nothing to say. Yeah. You know, it's like, like mom said, wow, <laughs> that's yeah. about what you can say. Is that wrong? Is that, I mean, there's times when I'm, you know, I pay attention to what I'm singing, but then there's times when I just can't because it's, I'm overwhelmed. So bad. I can't believe you do that. (laughs) Well, you're kind of making it sound like that. (laughs) Think about, you just, you just provided a, a beautiful picture that will, Set us up for some ways of success and maybe you help us reevaluate what we think worship is and what worship isn't. So let's say you, you read your passage and you, you have that sense of you know, you're overwhelmed and what comes out of your mouth is, wow, God, wow. An act of worship. If that is coming from the place of understanding who God is and beholding a portion of his majesty and then expressing to him that, that, Lord, you are, you're big. That would be worship. That would be worship. That would be an act of worship. We make it way too complicated too often. And then what we do is we also, not only do we make it too complicated, but then we also convolute it by going, if I read a chapter and it didn't come out emotional, but instead I'm like, wow, as I'm reading this, so God is this, this, and this. So I was reading this morning, telling my kids X, Y, and Z about who God is and what he has done. I was explaining that to them and proclaiming that to them. What did we just learn in Psalms? What did we just learn? Worship. Worship. We've been provided ample ways to worship. But the background I came from, and so maybe be a little bit different, I don't know, than your guys's, worship always had to be accompanied in order to be true worship. Always had to be accompanied by, I had to be in just the right state of mind, in in the just right state of, of worthiness to give him praise, and had to really like pull together some strong emotions that would then be expressed with heartfelt emotion. 
And if I didn't reach that plateau, then it didn't qualify as worship. That's a, that's a nice little bit of bondage right there that keeps us from actually then worshiping. Because you, I don't know how often you're able to pull that sweet mix together. But aren't there a lot of churches that Yes. Yes. And and if if it's not if it's not primarily taught, it's caught. In in that there's not a lot of a direct teaching that says, okay, this is this is how you this, you gotta get to this emotional state. But as we look around and as we evaluate and we elevate those who we think are reaching the bar, then we all start trying to mimic that. And then it's caught throughout the congregation that this is what worship looks like, right? And we need to be very careful about that on both sides of the of, of both sides of the equation here, uh, because again, we have to remember that we are ditch people. We rarely ride this thing right down the middle of the road like we should. We are often in one ditch or the other. Because should there be some portion of your worship that should result in an emotional response? Should your emotions ever be touched when you're worshiping? Absolutely. But in order to have a worshipful experience, does that mean that you have to be get to have this this great emotional response? No. No. But we're ditch people, aren't we? One side or the other. We gotta find a way to throw this thing into the ditch. Let's be careful about that. All right. In verse eight, go to verse eight. Somebody read that one again for us. Okay. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. So we're told here, we're invited, we're told to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. What does that mean? Do what? Give. Give to him. How? In what way do we give? According to this verse. Not, not according to the rest of scripture, but looking at this particular verse, what does it mean to ascribe to the Lord his glory and who he is? Give him all the glory that he's due. And how do we give that glory? By our worship. And in this particular, does that come out through our actions or through our voice. Ascribe. When we say ascribe to something, what kind of action are we talking about? If I ascribe to my wife her beauty, what action am I likely participating in to do that action of ascribing? I'm speaking it. We're talking about we're talking about words in this case that a portion of a, an, a, our worship is to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The example I have in my mind, uh, when my daughter was very, very small, 
Um, I may have shared, I, and I know I've shared this with you guys because I'm reaching that point in life where I'm old enough to where I'm repeating stories, but I remember that I'm repeating stories, which means that I haven't finally reached the final resting place of repeating stories. Um, but when my daughter was very small, like many of us, she was frightened of thunderstorms. Anybody else like have that as a kid? Okay, I was scared to death of lightning and thunder as a kid. As a kid. Scared to death. And the best, God love them, the best my parents could ever give to me to help get me through that was, that's just God upstairs bowling. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so my, my daughter was experiencing that same type of fright, and the approach that I took with her was, I have, I have something that I believe will help you with this. What I'd like you to do is just, I want you to start praying to God. And specifically what I want you to do in that prayer is I want you not to ask him to take away this fear, but instead I want you to tell him everything that is amazing about him that you can think of. And then we walk through a little exercise of, of, of trying to open up her mind a little bit to think about all of the things that are amazing from what he created to what he has done and getting very descriptive. I said, I want you just to spend as much time as you possibly can thinking of everything that he has done. And I suspect that by the end of that, you're probably not going to be nearly as scared of the thunder as we started. What, what in essence, I was teaching her to do to worship through that fear instead of focusing on that fear worship and if you worship that changes also your perspective as you start talking through the realities of who God is that also then shapes the reality of what you believe and so we we ought to find ascribing to God is essentially just telling him who he is. And where do we get our information for who he is? In his word. Have you done that? Have you gone through a prayer where there was zero request being made on your behalf? Like zero. Help me with my day. Help me with my job. Help me with my wife. Help me with my kids. Help me with my health. Please give me this. Please give me that. And the entire prayer was exclusively focused on just telling God who he is and what he has done. If you've not had that amazing experience, I highly recommend it. And I highly recommend that that is more of our prayers rather than less. Because by the time we get to the end of a lot of those prayers, I really don't seem to care as much if it gives me a perfectly smooth job because what does that matter if I have him what does it matter all right thoughts questions snide remarks on that there better not be any snide remarks on that because we're talking about God <clears throat> all right let's go back to verses 2 and 3 and then we're going to poke over to verse 10 so somebody read verses 2 and 3 for us Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth 
declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. Do verse 10 as well. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigns. The world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. So what does the psalmist here command us to declare to the nations and the people? That the Lord reigns. He's great. Anything else? Tells us to do things to declare to the nation God's salvation. Just tell tell of his salvation from day to day. God tell them of God's glory and great works in verse three. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. Tell of God's sovereignty in verse ten. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Not only do we see here a, a template for how we would worship amongst the world, we also see and get a glimpse into a bit of evangelism here and what it ought to be rather than a no-strings-attached, non-confrontational barbecue. Though barbecues are just fine. And inviting people over to demonstrate the love of Christ is great. But let us not make the mistake that that is declaring God's majesty. It's being really, really nice and living in light of the fact that you've been saved. That's great. But evangelism is primarily a word experience, not a life experience. It's a message. So we get a glimpse at worship. We get a glimpse at evangelism, even in this. Wow, I just answered my own question. It was really good. Good job, David. How is telling others about God's glory, salvation, and sovereignty an act of worship? Essentially, it's ascribing to God his glory when we tell others. Right? So as we've seen in this psalm, the heart of worship is giving glory to God for who he is and what he has done. So let's pick on music for a little bit longer. We'll move back into that just for a minute. If worship is giving glory to God for who he is and what he has done, what are some of the ways that that should impact our music that we sing on Sundays? This is so complicated. <laughs> Yet, in practical, experiential ways, we muddy this all the time and we lose sight of this very quickly, that worship is ascribing who God is and what he has done and expressing that, yet sometimes in our music it gets muddled down to how I have experienced my day-to-day -day life, or what's going on with me, and how bad I feel, and how good I now feel because of him, and though there's there's a nugget of truth in there. Um, our music ought to be primarily, and it better be theologically not only accurate, but rich. Our songs ought to be deeply, deeply theological. 
meaning accurately describing who God is and what he has done and joining together to tell him that. And then that becomes an act of worship. You have to be so careful because it can get very much in the other direction. Sometimes, and I'm, I'm not going to throw the baby completely out with the bathwater here, but sometimes if I couldn't tell the difference between the worship song and a love song for a woman. If I just took a step back and didn't know it was Hillsong, but just played some of the music and got the, got the lines and looked at them side by side and removed the word God from it occasionally, would I be able to tell if this is for God or for my wife? And if the answer is like, that's a tough call. There might, there might be. Though again, don't go to extreme here. Because ought there be some affection described and given in our worship of who God is? Our love, our devotion, but not romantic love, right? Not that kind of love. Like, Jesus is not your boyfriend, <laughs> right? That, like, not that stuff. But should there be also within our music this I will tell you, when I first started coming to church here, um, even though I had spent about eight years prior to that in a, a fairly solid biblical church, non-charismatic, fairly solid biblical church, I was still, I was still um, gun-shy. I was still twitching from my charismatic days, and anything that even hinted at anything that I thought might be in that movement, I really pushed hard against. And we will occasionally sing the song here. Uh, the, the, the phrasing goes, uh, Oh, I'm running to your arms. And I used to stand there and not sing that line. I sing the rest of the song, but when that line came up, I shut my mouth. Because it was a I felt as though I would be joining in with something that was not, well, that's not biblically accurate. There's nowhere in the Bible that tells you that you should run into his arms. That's just romantic imagery. Jesus also doesn't have any like wings that we go underneath to be shaded in shelter. He's also not a tower that we run into. Yeah, scripture would, Psalms would describe it that way. And so we have to be careful also not to overcorrect and overreact while not overcorrecting and overreacting the other direction either, right? Sorry, was that, was that too much? Did I just share too much? Yeah, listen to your to you listen to your mother. <laughs> listen to your mother. If sound doctrine is what fuels our worship, we've already talked about what kinds of songs then the church should be singing, which leaves a lot of room for style. Based on this psalm's teaching, how would you respond to someone who viewed worship as purely emotional 
a static experience, something that's too deep for words. Because sometimes that's the way that worship is described. It's just something that's way too deep, way too deep to even put into words. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not too deep to put into words. I can put it into words. But it doesn't mean that those words reflect the depth of what that means. But I can put it into words. Absolutely. I feel like I'm and I'm asking and answering most of my questions today. I'm sorry. I'm just really excited. Go to First Timothy for me. First Timothy four. First Timothy four thirteen. First Timothy 4.13, somebody grab that. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. You said 14 as well? Nope, just 13. And you're like, what on earth does that have to do with what we're talking about today? In light of Psalm 96, teaching us and explaining that sound doctrine fuels our worship of God because true worship is praising God for who he is and what he has done, that there is a component of this, a major component of worship that is expressing the realities of who God is, then according to 1 Timothy 4.13, in light of Psalm 96, how is public scripture reading in a church service an appropriate act of worship? Good job. You pointed exactly at what I circled. Nice job. Think about it. When we get up here in a little bit, somebody comes behind, somebody steps up behind that box and starts with a reading of God's word. That was an act of worship. We ought to pay attention. And I... I will leave it to you as to how you then respond to that, but might I encourage you to consider that there's something about once that proclamation of God's word starts, that the activities that we're having right before that of good, casual interaction and, and catching up with people and, and, and stops and shifts to wait. God is being worshipped now. My focus, my attention, my direction is changing. It's like to a greater, way greater degree um, when the national anthem plays. What happens at a sporting event? It stops. Everybody is supposed to turn and look at the flag. And like it, something shifts because of the action that's taking place. So when that public reading of Scripture starts, because that is an act of worship, so ought our attention also focus and change. There should be like this dramatic, okay, I'm here now. It's wise. This is a way personal pet peeve, and I'm going to, oh, you're going to hate me for this one. It's why once that happens, 
if you're if you're scooting into my aisle, which is totally fine, I'm going to ignore you at that moment. Like I'm not gonna like, hey, how you doing? What's going on? No, get get over. Because <laughs> now I'm worshiping, right? Not to the exclusion of being a jerk. I'm like, shut up, go on. Like not that. Did you? You with me? So for your kids. Oh, kids are the worst. You're gonna find that out. <laughs> they are the absolute worst. First Timothy 4.13, as we were looking at, Paul commands Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scriptures, the exhortation of teaching, an act of worship. Uh, many Christians think that worship exclusively in terms they think of it in terms of singing. We've talked about this. So their churches have a worship time and then the sermon. It rubbed me a little bit in the wrong way when I first started coming here, and they didn't refer to them as the worship team, but as the music team. I'm like, that's they're not the music team, they're the worship team. No, they're the music team. They're the music team. We've talked about that. I don't need to keep hitting that one with a hammer. Can you give a specific example of how... Let's just end here with two, a couple more examples. we still got 15 minutes. Don't worry, we're going to end soon. I see your lunch. You're looking at me like I'm a bad foreign film. Um, what are a couple other practical ways daily that we could find ourselves accurately worshiping? What are activities that you could participate in that would be an accurate way to worship? I would think of praise and prayer. Okay. Does that fit? That would fit? Okay, great. Keep going. I drive a lot. And I see a lot of creation. You know, like Jesus, the amazing creation. God's creation. Okay. So it's seeing, right, and then ascribing. Does that fit? Okay. Notice that if it would have stopped short of that, it wouldn't have been worship. Like if you would have been like, just being here, just being here is an act of worship. No, it's not. No, it's not. Okay, what other activities? Doing what you tell them to do every day. Mm. Okay. Praising God for who He is and what He has done. Living in light of what He has told us to do for those reasons. sat down with a piece of paper and wrote out with some kind of a header 
What are the possible ways that I could worship God? And then make sure that we have a right definition of it. Let that be our level set. We should have tons of opportunities. Tons. Okay. Uh, final thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, snide remarks, angry outbursts. Thoughts. Yeah. 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 We uh, nowhere, nowhere in scripture does it say you better have at least one acoustic guitar when you're singing on Sunday. <laughs> and we laugh at that, but it also doesn't say that you couldn't have an electric guitar. <gasps> that makes us uncomfortable, right? Though there are other principles <coughs> that we could pull from Scripture to help us uh, in trying to apply some wisdom principles on how we might organize our instrumentation. Wisdom principles, but not hard, fast biblical rules. Like I don't want to. I don't want. We don't want to be a distraction. Well, that that has some connotations and meaning that we might need to apply, right? Like I don't want. We don't want the team singing on the stage to be the main event. So, so a wisdom principle for us would be, well, don't bring all the lights down and only shine lights on them, and then have like really nice glow effects coming up from behind them to really illustrate so we can see them. Um, had a conversation with a good friend this week who they record, which is totally fine. They record their their Sunday morning worship. And a part of what they also record is the, the singing. And they have multiple cameras with multiple angles. And they talked the music team through how to appropriately respond to the cameras, how often you should be looking here or looking there versus the back wall, um, and to be cautious about how often your hands are up because you don't want to. Like there was this whole kind of choreographed thing that they needed to, to walk through, right? So you can go, sometimes you can go a bit too far, uh, yet there's also a principle, I don't want to be a distraction to those around me, because that's, it's not about me, right? Don't sing too low or way too high. We all know those people, right? We got to give a really good voice, but dude, down a little bit, everybody hears you. Supposed to be joining in today. Okay, I'm getting way too personal there. Sorry. All right. Sound doctrine is for worship. That's what we've talked about today. I'm going to delete out that last little half from the video recording here before it gets published to the interwebs. All right, let's pray and then we'll break. Father, we do thank you for this day. God, we're grateful that we have so much to worship because there's so much about you. There's so many truths about you that we've not yet understood. But even with, within what we have understood, there's so much that we want to ascribe to you, proclaim about you, and yes, live in light of it. 
Father, you are good. You are gracious. You are merciful to us. You've redeemed us because of who you are in spite of who we are. We're grateful for your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace, and that you've adopted us to be your children. We find ourselves unworthy, yet we're grateful for the worthiness of Christ. And we do pray in your Son's name all these things. Amen.